our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 1 Samuel chapters 5 and 6. And there's a question in this passage. Comes near the end in verse 20 of 1 Samuel 6. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? By the time we get to verse 20 of 1 Samuel 6, we realize something isn't right. The ark had come back to Israel, yes. But 70, or potentially a great many more than 70, depending on how you understand the Hebrew text right at that point. 70 men were dead. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, they cry. To whom shall he go up away from us? Get him away. Take away from us the presence of this God, this holy God. Who is this God? What do we learn about him in 1 Samuel 5 and 6? Now, we'll come back to their question at the end. But do you remember where we are in 1 Samuel 5? The Philistines had captured the ark. The ark. Or as the Israelites referred to it in our text from last week, if you were with us, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The visible sign of the presence of the Lord. The great king enthroned on the cherubim. At whose feet were the tablets of the covenant, remember? The arrangement by which God was to be Israel's God and Israel was to be God's people. And Israel knew God, for God had made himself known to them by his name, Yahweh. But now, as chapter 6, verse 1 puts it, the ark of the Lord that is Yahweh, you know that the capital letters in the text there mean that this is the covenant name of the Lord that's used. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines. The enemy, isn't the Lord supposed to deliver Israel from her enemies? The first words engraved on the stone tablets carried in the ark, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And there'd been some hard times in Israel's life since the Exodus, to be sure, but never before had they lost possession of the ark. How did it happen? Well, that was last week, of course, in chapter 4. How the Israelites decided, quite apart from any direction of the Lord to do so, that they would bring the ark into battle with the Philistines, that they would, in effect, manipulate the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 3, 
Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. It didn't work. Of course it didn't work. There stood Hophni and Phinehas there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. We know about them. They were the priests at Shiloh, but they didn't know the Lord. And it seems neither did the people who all gave a mighty shout, believing their covenant God would save them. But failing, as Israel had failed for so long to realize that the issue wasn't the faithfulness of the Lord, the issue was their unfaithfulness to the Lord. You shall have no other gods besides me, the tablet said. But they did. And they failed to remember that the covenant could be the source of Yahweh's blessing or his curse. And now Hophni and Phinehas are dead, killed in battle. Eli's dead, judged by the Lord, and it's the dying words of an unnamed woman, the wife of Phinehas, that ended chapter 4 in verse 22, and she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Which then shifts us into a very different course of events, doesn't it? Because the glory will return with no help from Israel. So we go with the ark in these chapters and we watch as the mighty God deals with his enemies. And the point, it seems to me, is not unlike another time when the Lord defeated a great enemy. The point of 1 Samuel 5 and 6 could be found also in the words of Moses. Singing in Exodus 15 on the other side of the Red Sea. Listen to Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glorious deeds. Doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The Philistines had it right, with their theology a bit confused, in their initial reaction to the presence of the ark in chapter 4 from last week, verse 8. Remember this? Woe to us, they said, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They were right. But then they won. And so they do what the, uh, with the ark what they would have done with any religious trophy won from an enemy in war. 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 and 2. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Ashdod is some 30 miles to the south west of Ebenezer. So we're closer now to the Mediterranean coast. It's the most centrally located of the five main cities of the Philistine territory with their five lords who are mentioned in this text. 
And it would seem that Dagon was the highest of the Philistine gods. So Robert Gordon, a commentator, writes in the Ugaritic text, Dagon is described as the father of Baal, who, of course, appears as the arch enemy of Yahweh at many points in the Old Testament. The father of Baal. So the imagery is powerful. They set the ark up beside Dagon. That is, beside the image of Dagon in the Dagon temple, because Yahweh's part of Dagon's pantheon now. There could be no more powerful expression of who had won. The ark of the God of the Hebrews was now captive in the house of Dagon. Had they not accomplished what even the great Egyptians could not? So it seemed. But not for long. Verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. How did that happen? No matter. They just helped Dagon out a little. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. The author says... Not with a little amusement, I think. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Only this time the points made clear. He wasn't just on the ground. Verse 4, And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold which likely would have meant something specific to the Philistines. Beheading an enemy was an ancient custom. You can go to a text like Judges chapter 7, verse 25, that points out that when the men of Ephraim followed Gideon's call to go against the Midianites, they killed two princes of Midian, and the verse says they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. There are sketches that depict how the Egyptians would count the severed hands of their enemy corpses after a battle. The point's clear. The Lord is a man of war, Moses sang in Exodus 15. The Lord is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Yahweh is the victor at the very threshold to the temple, the entrance into the abode of their God. This is why, verse 5 says, the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. They'll never forget it. The mighty God of the Philistines defeated in battle. And beginning in verse 6, then, the Lord turns against the people. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people, the text says, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And you can't see it in English, but the Hebrew author is making a point for us. 
The word translated heavy, it's the same word translated glory at the end of chapter four. It's kavod. It had departed Israel. Now it was present among the Philistines and the effect was terrifying. Tumors, a plague of tumors, it seems. Some scholars noting the connection of the mice or the rats spoken of in chapter six conclude this was an outbreak of the bubonic plague. But whatever the exact nature of it, it was clear to the people of Ashdod what was happening, verse seven. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. The rulers meet. The ark goes to Gath, verse nine. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So it goes to Ekron. But verse 10, as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So then comes their request in verse 11. Remember this for later. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Kavod. But they didn't do it, these leaders. The ark was their trophy of victory. But whose victory had it actually been? And so for seven months it went on and in desperation, the people call then next for the priests and the diviners. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? They petition. Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. The Philistine clergy then do their best. Do not send it empty. They advise but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. But how do you repay a debt you can't assess to a God you don't know? They answered, verse four, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the numbers of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on you all and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Kavod. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Perhaps it's their best guess. They don't know Yahweh. They suggest what seems right to them. What, what they imagine will be seen favorably by this powerful God, this God who defeated the Egyptians. In fact, because it seems they now know who this God is again. They knew it before when they heard of the ark's arrival on the battlefield. This was the God who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague. This was the God of the Exodus. The mighty warrior God 
who all on his own defeated the army of Egypt. Look at their question in verse six. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Just what does the author of 1 Samuel want us to see in this story, friends? Does any of this seem familiar? Send away the ark, they say in verse 3. The English translation isn't the same, but it is the same word used many times for Pharaoh's dismissal of Israel from Egypt. It's the same word Moses used when he said, let my people go. Do not send it empty, they say. Well, the Israelites, too, were not to leave Egypt empty. They were to take gold and silver from the Egyptians with them. Now the gold objects from the Philistines are to go with the ark as it is sent away. There is, of course, the obvious parallel with the plague that comes against the Philistines, the terrified panic they experience. It's not unlike the Egyptians. And then in verse five, they say, you must give glory to the God of Israel, which was the point then as well, wasn't it? Exodus 14, verse four, God had said, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you, the diviners say to the Philistines. And if you know the Exodus text, you know it was God's heavy hand of judgment that had been on the Egyptians. Listen to Exodus 3, verses 19 and 20. The Lord speaking to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. The only answer for the Egyptians was to send away the Israelites. The Philistine clergy point out in 1 Samuel 6, verse 6. Now the Philistines must send away the ark. It's all there. Why? Why so many echoes of the Exodus? This is so often how Hebrew narrative works, friends. The author doesn't come out and explicitly say the meaning of the links to the Exodus story. You're meant to understand their significance. So what was the significance of the Exodus? No need to guess at that. It's right there in Exodus 15 that I read earlier. Exodus 15, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 6 of Exodus 15, your right hand, O Lord, 
glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, you stretched out your right hand. And you know the end of the song, don't you? The end of Moses' song? The Lord will reign forever and ever. He is the king. There it is. The Lord, the Holy One, the mighty warrior, he's the king. He's their king. If they have him. So when the ark loaded with the gold of the enemies of Israel comes into sight over the hills of Beth Shemesh, what does it mean? It means he's the king, the great warrior king coming in victory. And how do you respond? Well, you rejoice. That's how you respond. You sing like Moses sang. Did you hear it in our psalm this morning? Verse 6 of Psalm 66, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. You sing like Moses sang. Only some didn't, evidently. And we'll come to that possibility in a moment. Initially, things seem good. Verse 13 of 1 Samuel 6, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Yes! Of course, it's fascinating how it got there, the ark, isn't it? Don't you love this? Two cows, never before yoked, take their calves home. What's the point? These cows aren't going to walk the ark back to Israel on their own. They won't take naturally to this yoke. They won't walk naturally away from their calves, all of which is designed to prove if it happens, this has to be the Lord. It, that it was the Lord doing this to the Philistines and Dagon all along. And I love how slowly it unfolds in the Hebrew text. In verse 12, and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, straight along one highway, lowing as they went. Why? Because it is the Lord driving them on against their own natural inclinations. And that day, the road from Ekron to Beth Shemesh became a highway for our God. The pathway was straight. The glory of the Lord was revealed. The question is, how did the people respond? Now, Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city. Not coincidentally, because it had to be the Levites responsible for handling the ark. 
We're about seven miles east of Ekron in the foothills of the central mountain range now in the territory of Judah. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. We don't know who this Joshua is. A great stone was there and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone because they're Yahweh's spoils of war, you see. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. The glory had returned to Israel. And we would have been glad for the account to end at that point, wouldn't we? Except it doesn't. Starting in verse 18 in the ESV that was read here, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. A witness to what? Verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Look at the verb translated struck there. If you're reading this text in the Hebrew, you know it's the same as the word the Philistines used when they spoke of the Lord striking the Egyptians. In chapter 4, verse 8, it's the same as the Lord had just done to the Philistines. The Lord responds as if his people are like the Philistines. And then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Do you hear it now, their response? Get it away, they say. It's the same reaction the Philistines had in verse 11. Send away the ark of the God of Israel. That it may not kill us and our people. There's something very wrong in Beth Shemesh. This isn't the full return of the Lord to his people. Yes, the ark has returned, initially greeted with some rejoicing and sacrifice, but ultimately with loathing and rejection. And what then is the issue? The ESV says in verse 19, they looked upon the ark of the Lord how exactly, we don't know. But they obviously violated the regulations in place for how the ark was to be treated. Why? Because they lack the basic respect for their king, their God, who had proven himself mighty, who had shown himself to be the warrior king. They didn't take seriously the glory, the holiness of the Lord, all of which may be seen more clearly in another manuscript tradition that you can find in verse 19. And if any of you have or have ever read the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible and one or two other versions as well, but the New Revised Standard Version follows a different manuscript tradition in verse 19. 
And it's a complicated issue of textual criticism, what decision you make. But in that tradition, not in the ESV, but in the NRSV, here's verse 19. But the sons of Jeconoia did not join in the celebration. They did not join in the celebration with the men of Beth Shemesh when they saw the ark of the Lord. And so he struck them down, 70 of them. And I don't know for sure, friends, but I'm inclined to go with that, given the passage. Either way, the point seems clear enough. There were some in Beth Shemesh who don't respond to the coming of the ark as they should. Who don't celebrate the Lord's unique power over the gods. Who fail to see the Lord majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Dear friends, your response to the presence of the Lord can go one of two ways. It's either rejoicing or it's rebellion. Which is yours? Which will yours be when the king returns? Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his hand are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, pure and white, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the people mourned, the text says. Because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow, like he did the Egyptians, like he did the Philistines. Listen to how one scholar reflects on the point of this text. Act like a Philistine, and you can expect to be punished like a Philistine. After committing sacrilege, the people of Beth Shemesh acted like Philistines again by trying to get rid of the ark. Instead of repenting of their sins, they sent the ark out of their country like the men who urged Jesus to leave them as he killed their swine. Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God, they asked. Certainly not Dagon, certainly not Philistines and certainly not Israelites who act no better than worshipers of Dagon. Which is where we are now at the end of chapter 6. Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? But I'd like to suggest in the closing minute of this sermon, that the answer to that question isn't no one. Because in 1 Samuel, we've already seen that it is possible to stand before the Lord. Hannah did. 
There in the tabernacle, she prayed before the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 12 tells us, I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord, she told Eli. And Samuel did. Remember chapter 3, verse 3, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Verse 10 of chapter 3, and the Lord came and stood. Verse 19, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. Verse 21, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, they ask? Reminds me of another question like it in Psalm 24, verse 3. You know this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The answer isn't no one. The psalmist gives the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Something isn't right when we come to the end of 1 Samuel 6, and it's the same thing that hasn't been right all along. The hearts of his people are far from him. Which means, dear friends, it's time for the word of Samuel to come. And it is to that word that we turn next week. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.